0: Lord God, as we consider the greatness and the majesty of your power, when we understand that you are aware of the placement of every particle in the universe, would that change how we pray? You've decided, Lord, that you want us to partner with you in what's happening here, and it's hard to understand how that can be the case. Why do we even need to pray? I mean, if you've got everything under control... And yet, Lord, somehow, in some way, you've decided that you want us to be active participants in what's happening. Somehow, some way, our prayers actually matter. That when we pray, it makes a difference. You've told your people to pray. And as we've been reading in the book of Luke, you, Lord Jesus, often went to pray. Lord, we now, we pray for our country. I pray for President Trump and the First Lady and the many people that are in the, the surroundings of the Oval Office, the cabinet members and all kinds of people that have been involved in this that are now coming down with COVID-19. We pray for their safety and recovery. Pray for President Trump that he would be healed so that he can get on about the task that he has been called to do to be the president of this country. Lord, we pray for the election that's coming up. We pray for Joe Biden as he is campaigning. And Lord, we would ask that you would speak to these men and women who are running for public office in this country. Please guide them, and we ask that their hearts would turn to you. Lord, we pray for Governor Walls and for the CDC and the MDH for these organizations, these government agencies that have been tasked with protecting us. Please give them wisdom, Lord. We pray for the many nurses and doctors who are in the middle of this, for the many people who are affected by COVID-19, and Lord, for even our school administrators who are trying to figure out the right thing to do in our Board of Christian Education as we figure out what to do at our church here, Lord, on Wednesdays and Tuesdays and Thursdays and Sundays. God, we need you to know. We need to know you and we need to know from you the steps we need to take. God, we know you are bigger than this. We know that you are bigger than any, any and all problems that are in our life. The question is, will we stop long enough to listen to you. We love you, Lord, and finally we pray for revival in this nation. We pray for a turning of people's hearts back to you, from the top level of government to the lowest person. We ask that we would turn to you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this has been quite a week, hasn't it? It's been a very strange week in what has been a very strange year. This week we saw a presidential debate. I'm not sure it was very presidential, nor do I think it was much of a debate. I saw a lot of ugly in that debate, a lot of what we've been praying against. But you know, I I also didn't see something. Do you know what I didn't see? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Did you see any of those things? Did you see the smallest speck of any of those nine attributes? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. May I suggest to you that the absence of fruit from that debate stage is of great concern to the United States of America. And then, only days later, President Trump and the First Lady tested positive for coronavirus. And if that isn't enough, we have also found out that our high school here in Bertha-Hewitt will be transitioning to hybrid learning because the COVID-19 numbers in our county are going up. This week and this entire year has been like being on a roller coaster. And I'm not talking about a fun roller coaster I'm talking about the kind of roller coaster when you get motion sick on the first hill. That's what it feels like to me. I'm tired. I'm guessing you're tired too. You know, tired isn't even the right word. I'm weary. I'm weary of all the changes that we have had to endure. I'm weary of people telling me that I have to do this or follow that rule or wear a mask. I am weary of the relationship strains that are happening because we're being pushed in every direction. I'm weary, and I, just like you, I just want to go back to normal. But you know, it's in moments like these, moments of tiredness, weariness, fatigue, These are the most important moments to keep our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the subject. COVID-19 is not the subject. Politics is not the subject. Jesus is the subject. And for a few minutes this morning, could we focus our attention on Jesus together? let's ask the Holy Spirit to clear our minds, to clear our hearts of all of the troubles, all of the frustration, all of the weariness. And just for a few moments, can we just see Jesus? Lord God, I ask that you would cleanse our minds, clear our hearts. We ask that we would make room for you in the center of who we are. Speak to us now, Holy Spirit. We need you. We need you to help us understand your word. We can't do this without you. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. For many weeks we have been challenged by the gospel of Luke to wrestle with a simple question. Who is Jesus? Our answer to this one simple question will determine the direction of our entire life, and in fact, it will determine the direction of our eternity. Peter answered this question correctly earlier in chapter 9, verse 20. Luke 9:20 says, "But what about you?" he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, The Christ of God. We have learned that this was a profound statement, a statement that was pregnant with meaning for the Jews of Jesus' time and still so is today. Last Sunday, we studied one of the most unusual and amazing moments in all of human history the Transfiguration of Jesus. This was a display of glory that the three disciples of Jesus witnessed. This was a moment of confirmation that their their confession of Jesus as the Christ was correct. And Peter, James, and John, they barely understood what they saw. And truthfully, we today still barely understand what they saw. But then we also learned that that amazing mountaintop moment was followed immediately by a valley. The other nine disciples had failed to heal a boy who was tormented by an evil spirit. And we're going to start our study today picking up with the end of that story. Luke chapter 9, verses 42 through 45. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully carefully. To what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Now you may remember that only a few days earlier, in fact, only really about nine days earlier, Jesus had told his disciples virtually the same thing. In fact, immediately after Peter had confessed, You are the Christ. Right after that, Jesus said, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be killed. So this is twice within like a nine-day period Jesus has said this. Do you think that the disciples got it yet? No, (laughs) they didn't. Here Jesus is telling them, and he wasn't keeping it a secret, that he was headed on a collision course with the Jewish leaders and that suffering was in his future. Nor did he hide the fact that those who followed him should expect the same treatment. They should expect to be persecuted. They should expect suffering. And that's why the next thing that happens is so peculiar. Look at the very next verse. So Jesus has just finished telling them that he's going to suffer and that they're going to suffer too. And now look at the next verse. Look at 946. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Really? Can you even put this in your brain? Jesus says, listen carefully to what I am going to say. He he even said, listen carefully. I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to die. And the next thing the disciples say is, I think I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Really? Really? Just let it sink in. The disciples have failed completely to understand what it means to follow Jesus. They have failed completely the significance of who Jesus is and what he came to do. They have misunderstood. They think that following Jesus is about greatness. They're wrong. Or at the very least, They completely misunderstand what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. They are wrong. Let's read this whole section now, starting in verse 46. Excuse me. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you, all. He is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Jesus Jesus needs to make a point with his disciples. Because what we have just read there is the fact that the disciples were not just confused. The disciples were dangerously confused. Sometimes when you need to make a point as a pastor or even just in a conversation, it's really good to get a visual aid, isn't it? Now, I want you to use your imagination... Okay, and and think about this scene with Jesus and the disciples. You got that in your brain? And especially, just think about Peter, James, and John, who undoubtedly are in the front row next to Jesus. They had just come down the mountain where they had been. Only the three of them in the entire planet were given access to the transfiguration. Can you imagine Peter, James, and John? Can you imagine what they were feeling? We got the special invite. We're the ones that got to see Jesus' glorified state. We got to see Moses and Elijah. We're up there. We've arrived. I'm, I'm thinking that they were feeling pretty good about themselves. And then they came down the mountain and they saw the other disciples, the other nine disciples had failed in trying to heal that boy of the evil spirit. And Peter, James, and John, they were living pretty high. In fact, so high that they were having a debate among themselves about which one was the highest. After all, whoever is the greatest in the kingdom gets the power of the kingdom, right? He gets to be a ruler. He gets to be a governor. He gets to be all-important, right? Children aren't important like governors, are they? And a little child certainly wasn't as important as one of the 12 disciples. And a little child especially was not important as one of the three disciples, the three special disciples that got the special invite to go up the mountain. And let me tell you something more. A little child definitely was not as important as the Christ of God. Was he? But Jesus takes a little child, and he has the child stand next to him. Do you have that in your mind? And verse 47 says Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Not stand in front of him, not stand behind him, not stand away from him, but stand beside him. Think about that now. What's the symbolism? that Jesus is trying to portray in this particular visual aid. The child is on equal footing with the master. And then verse 48, Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Now, do you have this in your mind, this picture? This picture that Jesus has created. Standing before the disciples was literally, literally the least. Of all of the people that were gathered there, Jesus picked the least, the little child. And then he, the greatest, stood on equal footing with the least. He's making a very stark point. How we treat the child is how we treat the Christ. They are interchangeable in this story. The kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. The least are the greatest, and the least should be treated with the dignity usually reserved For the greatest. Let me translate that for you. All human life has dignity. From the moment of conception until the moment of death, no matter the skin color, no matter their religion, no matter their sexual orientation, no matter their political affiliation, all human life has dignity. The least are worthy of the greatest respect. This is a profound truth of Jesus. And it is a truth that has been forgotten by many people who claim to be followers of Jesus. Let that picture in your mind sear into your consciousness. And and maybe you need to bring that picture to mind when you're tempted to place yourself above another human being. And maybe instead of a child... It needs to be a Muslim, or a rioter, or a person of the opposite political party. All, even the least, has the dignity that is on equal footing with Jesus. It's a powerful picture. It's a powerful picture. A picture I would have wanted to see in the debate. <laughs> Luke 49 through 50. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. <laughs> Isn't that, just stop for a second now. <laughs> That's really strange. Strange. Because we got this picture with Jesus and the child, right? We got the disciples sitting there. Jesus says, "Look, the least is the greatest. Look, equal footing." And what do the disciples say? Do the disciples say, "Jesus, that's profound. Let me go and try to try to live out that that idea of dignity with all of those around us." Let us share. Th- no, what do the disciples say? They don't even respond. It doesn't even sink in. The only thing they say is, I mean, they don't say anything, but think about the implication. They they don't even acknowledge the child. Instead, all they say is, well, Jesus, there's actually this guy that's doing, he's doing like stuff in your name. We told him to stop. Can you imagine Jesus right now? I mean, Jesus is standing here, the child's next to him, and they say that, and just, Jesus, he must have just been like, how does Jesus answer? You know, the he says, let him do it. Whoever's not against us is for us. Now, that's always been a little bit strange, but it doesn't take a lot of thinking to understand when you see this picture to understand what's actually going on here. The disciples... We're trying to do a power play. You see, the disciples were trying to say, we are the greatest, right? We're the only ones that should be doing miracles. Not people out there. We are the ones who have all the power. We're the ones that should be dispensing the power. We're the chosen ones. We're the super disciples. Everybody else is just a crowd, right? We've got the the monopoly on the power of Jesus. Jesus is wrong. He says you're wrong. And here again, we have a moment of reckoning for the church, don't we? This morning, we celebrated communion. And once again, I welcomed all to the communion table who are followers of Jesus Christ, right? Why do we do this? Well, part of it's because of this verse, you guys. There are churches that say you can only take communion if you're a member of that church. Think about the implication with this passage of Scripture. Do you see this? Well, you haven't done all of the hoops that we want you to jump through before you can take communion. But those hoops aren't in the Bible. That doesn't matter! Well, actually, that does matter. And by the way, we do not in this church think that we have the monopoly on the truth of Jesus Christ. We do not say, you know, you really shouldn't go to that church or that church, because they're, you know, well, there are other churches. We don't, we think everybody should just come here. That's not what we say, do we? We reach our hand out to every bloodwashed one. That's what old Church of God hymns talk about. We reach our hand out to every bloodwashed one. Unity matters. And when we see, when I see other churches doing great things for the kingdom of God, I rejoice. Do you? I rejoice. And you know, so many small and medium churches in this country are dying right now. I don't want to see any church die. I don't want to see churches in Bertha die. I don't want to see any church die. This isn't just about us, like somehow we've got to have like this centralized whatever. This is about the power of Jesus. Whoever is not against us is for us. Christian unity is worth pursuing. And now let's look at the next section, starting in verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them and they went to another village. Okay. I've definitely got something to say about this. But I want to just stop before I get all excited about the part I'm going to be, get excited about. I want to tell you just real quickly something about verse 51 that is very interesting. Okay, so look at verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, this little sentence doesn't seem like much when you're reading. It's just just like a little placeholder. But actually, verse 51 marks off something very interesting in the Gospel of Luke. And in fact, this thing is just a Gospel of Luke thing. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, do not have this particular, particular literary feature that Luke has. Starting in verse 51, chapter 9, verse 51, for about 10 chapters, everything revolves around the fact that Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem. So I didn't even, nobody had ever told me that until I got to seminary. I was in my New Testament class. And our New Testament professor, who is amazing, he goes, yes, you need to understand that there is a structure to the book of Luke, and that structure, the entire middle section of the book of Luke, like the meat and potatoes, is all the journey to Jerusalem. Now, as we read the next 10 chapters, over and over we will encounter, and Jesus turned toward Jerusalem, and Jesus continued toward Jerusalem. It's a powerful literary device. Excuse me. The other gospels don't use this literary device. So, So why does Luke do this? Well, there's been lots of ideas, but it's this, it's a the big idea is that Jesus had firmly in mind what his job was. Jesus firmly understood that he was heading toward death. And all of the teaching that we are going to encounter in the next 10 chapters has like the shadow over it all, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And now the first nine chapters that we've gone through, a lot of those nine chapters, there was a little bit of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, but most of the nine chapters were about what Jesus was doing, like miracles, healings, uh, demons being cast out. But the next 10 chapters, there's still some of that, but there's a whole lot more about answering a new question. You see, the first 10 chapters were, who is Jesus? The next 10 chapters are really more about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. And all of that is overshadowed. Being a disciple of Jesus is all overshadowed by the fact what Jesus was going to do in Jerusalem. So the next 10 chapters... All of it, all the overarching and all of the teaching of Jesus, all is with the idea, remember the suffering, the passion of Jesus. Because Jesus, through everything he did, especially from this point forward, is in the front of his mind. It's a powerful literary device. And by the way, this is just a fun fact. You know, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. The writer Luke wrote Luke and Acts. He wrote them both. In fact, we know the Gospel of Luke is Volume 1, and the Book of Acts is Volume 2. And Luke uses the same literary feature in Acts, except in Acts, it's not Jesus going to Jerusalem, it's Paul going to Rome. Same literary device, same structure. Luke did it on purpose. And think about the implications of what that means for us. Rome, the political power capital. Okay, that's a different sermon. Now back to the text at hand. This little section has two very important things in it. The section that we've read here. The first one is the one we're beginning to get used to. You ready for this? The failure of the disciples. Have you noticed that there's a theme? Uh, the past few sermons that I've been talking about, there's this theme. Every time the disciples... Did, the, the one thing they got right was the confession that Jesus is the Christ. And right after that, they've got nothing right. Nothing. They failed to get... Well, well, first of all, the three of them were like, we should set up booths at the transfiguration. That was wrong. The, the next one, they couldn't get the demon cast out of the boy. And then everything they say and they do since the confession of Jesus as the Christ, they've gotten wrong. Well, that's definitely a theme that's happening here. The second important thing about this section is very important for us today. And I mean specifically right now. The next thing I'm going to say is extremely important for the church to hear right now. You see, this little section answers a question. Just a a little easy question. How are God's people supposed to react to others when they oppose us? Well, that's a good question. How are we supposed to act when people oppose us? Hmm. You see, followers of Jesus are going to run into people who disagree with us and oppose us all the time. It's Kind of par for the course. Jesus said it's par for the course. Well, he didn't use those exact words. But he did say, "Why? I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be persecuted, and so will you. It's part of being a follower of me. But that that does raise the question, how are we supposed to react? Do you think the disciples' reaction was the right one? Let me read that again. Verses 52 through 54. And Jesus sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? By the way, this is James and John, right? Okay, who was up on the mountain in the transfiguration? It was Peter, James, and John. So we got two of the super disciples, two of the extra special ones that got to go up in the mountain. So they, their big plan for how to deal with people that oppose Jesus is to incinerate them in godly fire. That's their plan. That's what they think the right thing to do is. Now, where did they get that idea? Well, I think they got that idea probably from Elijah. The story of the Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right? Elijah called fire down to consume, uh, to consume the offerings of the prophets of Baal. I mean, it's a story. And we've already talked about people thought Jesus was like Elijah and all this kind of stuff. So, I mean, they were looking at the Old Testament saying, fire from God! I love verse 55. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And they went to another village. Now, this is one of those places in Scripture where I really wish Luke would have given us more detail. I so, so would like to know precisely what Jesus said. Wouldn't that be fun to know? I mean, because I, I can now just imagine what Jesus said. I, do you have this picture in your mind, right? Jesus, should we send fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritan villages? Can you just see Jesus? I mean, they're walking. They're walking, and so they're, they're walking behind Jesus. Jesus, should we send fire to incinerate them? Can you see Jesus? Are you for real Have you been listening to anything I've been telling you? I mean, I've done this before, but I'll do it again. I I think Jesus may have also done this. I mean, he stops. He turns. Ah! Now, I've done that maneuver a number of times in our series in Luke, haven't I? This is the stupidest thing that the disciples could have said. It's the worst answer! The worst answer. It is exactly 100% opposite than the answer that they should have given at this point in the story. Do you remember? The Sermon on the Mount has already happened. What's in that Sermon on the Mount? Oh, that pesky thing. Love your enemies. Oh, that's pesky. Can you just, can you imagine Jesus at this moment? Lord, you gave me this to work with. This is what I've got. This is the crew. I don't think Jesus said this, but I think I would have. Are you dumb as a box of hair? I think I would have said something like that. How in the world would they say that? And it says Jesus turned and rebuked them. You know what that word rebuke means? You guys, ever used that word? Rebuke, express sharp disapproval and criticism. It's a word that implies the sharpest response to correct. It's a word that means you are exactly wrong. You could not have gotten that more wrong than this. Now, I wonder, what does this story have to say to us today? When somebody disagrees with us today, how do we react? Like children on a debate stage. Oh, but it's not just reserved for the highest office in the land and those that are vying for the highest office in the land. I think, I think this is exactly the message that the church in America needs to hear right now. We are so concerned about being right that we could care less about how the message comes across. Love, Matters How we speak is as important, if not more important, than what we say. And when we talk to someone who's the least, when we talk to someone who disagrees with us, when we talk to someone who opposes our position, we need to think about the picture of Jesus and the child. Because the way we treat that least, the way we treat that enemy, is how we treat Jesus. Did you hear that? Are you catching what Jesus has to say to us? Could there be a more potent message for us? You know, I I thought this week, Jesus, what do you want me to preach on? Because it seems like we've been in Luke a while. Maybe I should just stop and preach on, like, joy. I should just preach, you know, joy would be good. We could use some joy. And then I read this and I'm like, oh yeah, that's the one we need to hear. And I need to hear it too. This isn't just, this is us. I know we're anxious. Church, I know you're anxious. We are anxious about all of the changes around us. We're anxious about face masks, and we're anxious about social distancing, and we're anxious about everything. We're anxious about, well, what if, what if Trump stays president? Well, what if Biden becomes president? Ah! Oh, no! Oh, the sky is falling! Oh, no! Or what if we started treating even our enemies as if they were Christ? I got one amen very quietly from the back. What if we started treating our enemies as if they are Jesus Christ? As if they are the child who's on equal footing with Jesus Christ. What would our country look like in that reality? We've got to stop this division. I'm preaching against it in the name of Jesus Christ by virtue of His Word. And now our final thought for the day that I'll tell next week because I think I'm past time. We'll pick it up next week. I want to end with this. This is a profound statement. A profound statement that we need more now than we've ever needed before in our country. Are you ready for it? It's called Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Love your enemies. Recognize that the least is the greatest in the kingdom. And as you treat other people, remember that's... Christ, we must take a step toward unity. We must be the people of God in this place. We are the salt and the light. How we respond matters. Thank you, Jesus, for this time we've had together. We need you to give us the strength to do this because it feels like our strength is gone. It feels like we are so weary that we cannot have another conversation. We, we just, we just want to be done with all of this, Lord. But you've put us in this place and there's so much opportunity for us <laughs> to be the love of Christ. Your hands and your feet in this place. Help us, God, to be kingdom people. In your powerful name, Lord Jesus, amen.